When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the Decibel Podcast with Chris Sinzak and Aaron Camaro. And we are back. That's right. Time for the Decibel Geek Podcast, your weekly dose of rock and roll. And a couple of guys that like to talk about it a whole lot. That's me. I'm Aaron Camaro. Joined, as always, by my awesome friend and kick-ass co-host, Mr. Chris Sinzak. How you doing, brother? I'm good. Welcome to December. Did you have a good turkey day? Yeah, Thanksgiving was great. I hope everybody out there had a great Thanksgiving. If you're as lucky as me, you got to spend it with a whole lot of people that love you a lot. And that's what I did, so it was amazing. I know you had a hell of a Thanksgiving adventure. Yeah, we went down to Florida. I officially became a grandfather two weeks ago, so I met my granddaughter for the first time. That was amazing. Nice. Now your grandfatherhood will match your poor attitude. (laughs) My poor attitude? Is it that bad? (laughs) Well, people have been calling you a curmudgeon for years, so now it's finally caught up. I've been a curmudgeon since I was five. Well, there you go. It's finally caught up. (laughs) Nothing new. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, here we are. It's December. It's getting a little chilly outside. The holidays are right around the corner. It's the season of giving. And if you want to give something awesome to the Decibel Geek Podcast, man, here's something you can do. You can give us a review or a recommendation. We like to get them on Apple Podcasts. We love them on Podchaser. Heck, we even enjoy those elusive Facebook recommendations. And being that it is the season of giving would be a great time to give us one because we like to read them on the top of the show. We don't have any, so we can't read it because you didn't leave it for us. I was thinking about something the other day. You know, people always give us feedback and they like to comment on the things that we did. But a great way to get your comments read on the Decibel Geek podcast would be to give us a five-star review on Podchaser. Because on Podchaser, you can go right down to the very episode. So you could say... I love the Decibel Geek Podcast. Here's five stars on Podchaser. And this is what I liked about the show. This is what I didn't like about the show. This is what I agreed with. This is what I didn't agree with. And by doing that and leaving five stars on it, we are forced to read your feedback on the show. It's brilliant. Why haven't you thought of this before? Yeah, I mean, you could give us five stars and completely trash us. Right. As long as you give us five stars, we don't care. <laughs> we're, we're like Ron Burgundy. We don't even, we, you know, we read, read everything verbatim on the teleprompter. Right. Yeah. And if you do that, it'll be on the teleprompter and we'll have to read it. We'll be forced to. So hit us up with those reviews and recommendations. It makes us sad when we don't have any like today, but we're going to carry on with the show anyhow, because we know you guys love us. We have a lot of fun doing this. We've been doing it for a long time. Pantheon Podcast has come around, seen what we're doing, believes in us, thinks we're awesome. So they included us on their roster, which is amazing because everybody knows that Pantheon Podcast only provides the greatest music podcasts on earth. They don't have any junk ones. They're all really good. So when they included us into this, we're pretty honored by that. 
because then we can say, well, now we definitely must be a damn good podcast. Otherwise, Pantheon would have never had nothing to do with us. So do us a favor. Check out Pantheon Podcasts in their roster of amazing music podcasts. Don't waste another minute of your life listening to a bad podcast in hopes that you might find your new favorite when Pantheon has already done all the work for you and is serving them all up on a silver platter. So big thanks to Pantheon Podcast and a big thanks to everybody that listens to this show and supports us and loves us. Man, we've had a lot of fun here lately. We're creeping up on the end of the year. We've been doing some cool stuff on the show. And whenever we come out with a new episode like today, you got an opportunity where you can take and share it and retweet it on your social media accounts. And when you do that, your name gets put on a list a list of prestigious people that show us that they love us and they care about us by sharing with the world what we've got going on here on the Decibel Geek Podcast. And when you do that, and we see your name is on that list, well, you're going to hear your name on the top of the very next episode, just like right now. These are the Geeks of the Week. Geeks of the Week this week are Adam Cox, Rock and Ron Runyon, Kristen Schimbeck, Mark Alden-Taylor, Freeform Rock Podcast, Mark Starsky, Craig Turdich, Samuel Wetz, John Phillips, Eric Luzier, Brent Tibbetts, David Glenn, Aaron Baker, Mike Parnell, Keith Rockford, Jeffrey Mendenhall, Grayson Gallegos, Dawn of the Rising, Tom Logsdon, Patrick Breen, Boris Petrovsky, Todd Cunningham, Pantheon Podcast, Anthony Roush, Big Al's Rockin' Podcast, A to Z Radio, Michael Hall, the BS Sessions, Kevin's on Fire, Tom Smoke, Belmondo, Eladio, Vet Halen, Whiting Guitar Works, Focus on Metal, Jeff Mendenhall, Will Honeycutt, Jay Shablewski, Hakon Bergstad, Too Punk to Be a Podcast, Joseph Capone, Victor Ruiz, Scott Crouch, and as always, the, the Mooger Fooger. That's right. Those are our people, the ones that love us the most. They take the time to show the world that we're talking about rock and roll here. You love rock music? You ought to be listening to Decibel Geek. And by sharing these episodes, you're helping us get the word out there. We appreciate it very much. You do that with this episode today, you're going to hear your name on next week's episode. Simple and easy as that. Got to love it. So, yeah, here we are. We got to come up with a new episode. Chris is down in Florida. He's got to meet his granddaughter for the very first time. It was like, what are we going to do? I said, let me think about it. I had this idea kind of bouncing around in my head. Let me see if I can hash it out and figure out how this is going to work. So this is what I come up with. Today, we're going to talk about record labels. We talk about the bands all the time. We talk about the producers. We talk about all the different aspects of hard rock and heavy metal music, but we've never really talked about record labels before. So what I'd like to do today is take a look at the record labels, especially here in the United States, because that's where we are. So that's going to be our best perspective. We're going to talk about the top record labels in the country in the early 80s. That's going to be a pretty unique thing because we're going to see where these record labels are, who's on their roster coming into the 80s, and then we're going to kind of see which ones really pick up on things and see what's coming in the future. Because with rock music and these labels, I mean, they've got all kinds of pop music. A lot of them have big country artists. They're not hurting for cash. But when it comes to rock and roll, and that's what we care about, it's pretty interesting to see like who they had and where they went, like who they would sign, who, how this would go on. And looking at the early 80s, it's kind of a neat thing to see which ones really saw 
the wave of rock, the popularity coming out of the Sunset Strip, coming out of San Francisco, coming out of New York City, all the stuff that was about to rise up in the 80s. In the second half of the 80s, man, that stuff explodes. But in the early 80s, we're going to see who's on the case and who's not. What do you think? I like the idea, and it's it's a topic that doesn't really get delved upon because the re- record labels are kind of a non-existent thing in today's society. But in the 80s, they were the make-or-break career makers at the time. Right, because if I'm talking about, like, say, 10 of the top record labels of 1980, mm-hmm. well, that's two today, Sony and Universal. You know? <laughs> They've all been absorbed by each other. Yeah. And then, you know, and that's that's what makes this kind of tricky, too, is because record labels are weird. Like some record labels you look at and I've learned a lot by trying to get some information together for this. Some record labels are owned by other record labels, but they're completely separate from the record label that owns them. Yeah. And some get taken over and some get absorbed. Mm -hmm. And there's going to be some things in here that I have questions about that I bet you, Chris, can probably help me out with. Well, let me stop you real quick. Like, So you said of the 10 major record labels in like 1980, two of them survived? Well, for the majority, if you follow the timeline, I mean, there's still a few of these are still around. But if you follow the timeline and you look at like who's releasing albums today, it's the majority is Sony and Universal Music owns pretty much everything nowadays. Yeah, they bought up a lot of the smaller labels. Yeah, so there's not a whole lot left. But in 1980, man, this was a thriving thing. But no, it's going to be interesting to to take a look at what in what labels were popular at the time, what artists they were on, and also like the relationships because the record label artist relationship that could be a, a really good thing or a horrible thing depending on which band you're talking about. Well, then I guess let's start with some of the big ones and one of the biggest of the '70s rolling into the '80s. You can't do this without talking about Warner Brothers. Sure. Warner Brothers was formed in 1928, and it was created as a way to save money on music for silent films. Hmm. That's where Warner Brothers comes from, because you think the famous movies from way, way back then, you talk about like 1928 silent movies. That was a new thing back then. You had to have music for them because they didn't, couldn't record the dialogue between the people, so you had to put music in the background. Warner Brothers says, why are we paying these guys for this music? We could create our own label. And eventually it becomes known as what we think of today as a record label, but at that time, it's exclusively to furnish music for the silent films. So jump way, way ahead from 1928, we get into the 70s, is when they start doing rock. And originally, Warner Brothers, I think probably the biggest thing they did to kick things off was around 1971, they signed Alice Cooper. Alice Cooper's a part of Warner Brothers from 71-ish to 83-ish and has a long run with them. Warner Brothers at the time in 1980 also have Black Sabbath. In 1978-ish, they hired, they signed Van Halen. And around 1979, they signed ZZ Top. If you're talking about the Warner Brothers and their top earners, as far as rock music goes, it's Alice Cooper, Black Sabbath, Van Halen, ZZ Top. That's their roster, as far as what we're talking about here today, rolling into the 80s. I mean, you can't go wrong with Van Halen, and you know ZZ Top's going to have a lot of success in the early 80s. 
But I think we all kind of know with the benefit of being in the future already, not so great for Alice Cooper and Black Sabbath. But we'll see what Warner Brothers can do to maintain their spot on the top. And also, um, even though Kiss was on Casablanca, they were distributed by Warner Brothers, at least back in the 70s. See, that's where this gets all confusing because, like, some record labels are them. That's it. They're by themselves. But then other ones are partners with this. But when you look at it, it's not acknowledged that there's partnerships. And sometimes this record label has that record label distribute the albums. And it gets pretty confusing. It's a lot of moving money around. (laughs) Yeah, big time. Big time. Like, if somebody ever wrote a book about this, it would be the size of the Bible. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's so many moving parts in the music industry between the 70s and the 80s. Well, and with Kiss, I know that the only reason I really know that is because, um, remember they well, did... Well, let's... The- we're we're going to get to Kiss. Okay. We're going to get to Kiss. Casablanca is definitely on their li- on this list. They were still alive in 1980. I, I just remember the pictures from the, the great Kiss-Off kissing contest. There was, like, the winners had wore shirts that said Kiss Warner Brothers Records on it. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I guess I didn't think about that. That's weird. But for official reasons here today, Kisses with Casablanca. Sure. But we'll get to that. So then let's talk about Atlantic Records, one of the most iconic names and record labels of all time. They were created in 1947, but in 1967, they're bought by Warner Brothers. But they're allowed to continue as their own thing. So that's another example of how weird this is. Atlantic, as far as rock music goes, man, they made their bread and butter from like 1969 to 1973 with Led Zeppelin before they do their own thing with Swan Song Records. Then when Led Zeppelin is over, Robert Plant goes solo and he's not going to mess around with no record labels. He creates this thing called El Esparzanza, I guess, was the record label all Robert Plant stuff was on through the 80s. That's his own thing, kind of like Swan Song. He ain't got time to mess around with no record labels. So when Zeppelin's done in 73, they're gone. They never get Robert Plant back. Man, Atlantic got hurt when Led Zeppelin moved away and started doing their own thing. So now they got to come up with something new. So they put all their rock and roll money behind two bands. One in 1976, ACDC. Smart move. The other one, Foreigner. Love them or hate them. You can't deny the success they had in the early 80s. So that's what Atlantic is banking on rolling into the 80s. Then we got the classic, the OG record label, Columbia. It's the oldest surviving record label around, even still to this day. How long ago? 1889 Damn. is when they were formed, along with the advent of the phonograph. As soon as the phonograph was created, somebody was smart enough to go, hey, we need to make a company and kind of see what we can do to make money off this thing. So much to the point that in 1948, Columbia Records introduces a little thing called the LP. So a lot of history there for Columbia. As Columbia Records is rolling into the 80s, they're counting on three bands to bring them the rock and roll riches. Those bands, Aerosmith, Blue Oyster Cult, and signed around 1977, Judas Priest. Nice. Those are the ones. That's a hell of a roster. Even if you only got three, you got three powerhouses right there. Sure. Going to do pretty good in the 80s, I'm betting. Then we've got Epic Records. Man, Epic's been around a long time. When I'm going through this list, every time I read one of these names, I can almost picture 
the logo in my head. Yeah. Because you've seen it on all the records, all the 45s, little stamps on your back of your CDs and cassette tapes. These things are like etched into my mind because I've seen them so many times. Yeah, they had an awesome logo. Yeah, Epics is pretty damn cool. They were formed in 1953. They were created by Columbia Records as a standalone for jazz and pop music. Mm. So when we roll into the 80s with Epic, they've got Ted Nugent, they've got Boston, they've got Molly Hatchet, Cheap Trick, and Hart. It's a good lineup. Pretty good. They're banking on making a lot of money into the 80s. Now here we are. Formed in 1973, here's another iconic logo I'll never forget. Casablanca. Formed in 1973, that makes this the 50th year anniversary of that company. Formed by Neil Bogart. You know, mostly disco, but first it was Kiss. Signed around 1973, they're going to stay with Casablanca all through the 80s. They also had Parliament which is funk band, George Clinton, all that good stuff, did pretty good for them in the, in the 70s. And then they got Angel, and then in 1980, they'll sign Peter Chris to his own deal, which that doesn't last very long. But yeah, big changes in the near future for Casablanca Records as we roll into the 80s. Here's another one, A&M Records. See, when I say it, you can picture the logo in your mind because you've seen it so many oh, times. Yeah, definitely that one. Formed in 1962. By Herb Alpert. Oh, he formed the label? You know the guy with the Tijuana Brass? Of course. You ever think about it, the A and the M, and then down at the bottom always had the little trumpet. So he formed the record company himself? Yep, him and another guy. It was Alpert and Moss, I believe, is what A&M stands for. Yeah, Jerry Moss. Uh, well, like that makes sense because I was at a record store in Florida last week, and like we were all kind of laughing about how the... Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass record. I think it's called like Whipped Cream and Other Assorted Delights. Do you know the album I'm talking about? Yeah, with the girl on the cover with the whipped cream. Yeah. Did you know that that's like the most overproduced vinyl album of all time? Oh, because they they press so many. It, it was just I gotcha. they they made so many that like you you almost without fail, no matter what record store you go to, you will find a copy of it. That makes total sense because like when you look through like the cheap records yep. and it's the old old timey stuff there's always a shit ton of herb alpert in there yeah especially that one record because they must have went to press with a shit ton of those it became an iconic album cover just because everybody's seen it i guess oh yeah then there's record companies to this day that over the last like five years they'll have a day where they'll just set up that album as like where it looks like that's the only album in the store and and share the photo of it because it, that's there's just funny. so many of them that's funny. <laughs> and, and like I'm at that store in Florida last week, and like this is a really rundown looking record store, but they had amazing prices. But like I'm looking through this stuff, and like as you go to, and like we're all laughing about that album being overproduced. So I go back into the super cheap section. No more than five minutes, I find it. Yeah. <laughs> and I ran up to the front, and everybody's still gathered around there. I'm like, hey, I found it. And everybody just died laughing. That's funny. Yeah, that album's everywhere. Yeah. If you need that album, your best bet, go to a Goodwill. Yeah, if you don't find that, you'll find Garth Brooks' Greatest Hits. Yeah, for sure. Another overproduced album. So A&M, not really known for their hard rock music, but rolling into the 80s, they do have Nazareth. 
and they've got Sticks, and they've got 38 Special, three bands that actually did pretty good for them in the 70s. And we were talking on the phone about this concept the other day, and I think now that I think back, I think they were the ones that had Y&T. 100%. We're yeah. going to get to all that. Okay, cool. We're going to go through all the signings through the 80s, like okay. who grabs who and who ends up where. And then finally on my list, I've got Capitol Records. Can't do this without them. Yeah. Formed in 1942, the very first West Coast record label. And this was the U.S. label of the Beatles. But throughout the 70s, well, they had the Steve Miller Band. <laughs> they also had Sammy Hagar. Lawson. And, of course, Juice Newton. Wow. Yeah. Was a part of Capitol Records. That kept them afloat. Yeah, that's the heavy stuff that Capitol's got. <laughs> I mean, and there's other labels, too. You know, you got, like, the ones overseas, Polydor, EMI, Vertigo, Chrysalis, Virgin, yeah. even Jet, which Ozzy Osbourne was on originally, and then Arista. You got MCA and RCA. These labels aren't really doing much. You know, there's not a whole lot to really list to include on here, plus... They're overseas. We're going to concentrate mainly on the United States. So those are the main ones we're going to talk about. So now here we are, 1980. There's going to be some moving and shaking going on as we go through the first half of this decade. And we're going to see the launch of hard rock and heavy metal music into the mainstream. And it's going to be because of all these labels. So one of the first things that happens is EMI. This is an English record label. But it's, you got to note it because, you know, Judas Priest is already signing to a U.S. label, but they were probably EMI originally too. But EMI picks up Iron Maiden. Pretty big deal. It's really between them and Priest. It's the kickoff of the new wave of British heavy metal. And so we're going to see other record labels kind of picking up on that as we go through. It's really going to kick off the second half of the 80s, but... I mean, all this really explodes. If we do a part two to this, it'll be insane to list all the bands and all the movement. Also in 1980, Joe Perry Project gets signed by Columbia. It's two years and two albums. And weirdly enough, they're label mates with Aerosmith. That's awkward. Yeah. Good thing they didn't make them tour together. That would have been an interesting tour. You think they fought while they're in the same band. Imagine what they do when they're competing for cheering. Right. So now we're going to hit like the first big mover of the 80s. We got Ted Nugent, previously on Epic, did pretty good for them, but he's going to leave and he signs with Atlantic. That's a pretty big move in 1980. It's pretty hard to nail down the exact dates. So I kind of went by when the albums came out. Right. So now here's where I could use your help. Because we're going to talk about Casablanca Records. And I know you being the KISS expert, you're going to be able to help me out with this because it's kind of confusing to me. So you got Casablanca, but then around 82, all of a sudden, it's not Casablanca anymore. It's Polygram and Mercury. Right. So how does that work? How does the, the change happen with KISS? So what it was was they got through, I think it was after Dynasty that... Neil started because disco started to die and Neil started looking to cash in because everything else was kind of kiss was really the only successful act they had because village people 
were a big act, but they were, you know, disco was dying off. So they, their fate was sealed. Same with Donna summer. Um, and that was really all they had. They had, and then they had like Piper and Toby bow and I think Pablo Cruz, but like, it was nothing that was really hit, hitting the charts. So Neil sold out to polygram and it was a thing where he still was able to release kiss material on Casablanca, but Casablanca was owned by polygram starting. in I think unmasked was the first polygram distributed album. Okay. So polygram still calling the shots when you get to 1982 and that's where things got sticky with kiss because Ace was leaving the band, but the band did not want to admit to that because the money they got from Polygram was huge. It was like over a hundred million dollars. It was insane. Wow. Back in the early eighties. Yeah. Like that, that their windfall hit as their popularity started to dive. So they had all that money, but there was a three, like a three member clause where they had to have at least three original members on the covers of the albums and involved with the albums and recording the albums. And Ace was not involved on Creatures, as we all know, but that's why the whole cover-up, because it wasn't just because they didn't want to piss off fans, it was because they didn't want to be in breach of contract. So that was part of C.K. Lent's book was they put Ace on the cover, even though Ace didn't play a note on the record, and then Polygram started digging into it and polygram sued them and or either that or kiss sued pot no kiss sued polygram saying that um polygram was founded by uh nazis what yeah because there were there were nazi germans that were involved in the the company that started polygram and kiss won the lawsuit but like the the winning amount that the judge awarded was something low like a hundred thousand dollars yeah. So it was like it was a hollow victory. So, and then Polygram was like, well, you didn't have Ace on the record. So they started screwing Kiss on their advances in the 80s. And that's why Kiss had a hard time in the 80s. They didn't have, they didn't have the, the record label believing in them as much. And they had pissed off the record label. Wow. Yeah. Shouldn't have lied, I guess. But I guess what choice you have? You already lost Peter Chris. And they say you lose one more guy, it's going to change the, the face of this band. And I, and I don't blame Paul and Gene for doing what they did. I mean, it was survival at that point because right. your popularity's already taken a dive. You do Australia, and that's great, but everywhere else you're, you're just dying. And I think they did what they had to do, but they couldn't have been surprised that they didn't get a lot of support from the record label for the next few years because they tried to sue them. Yeah. Well, yeah, try to sue your boss and then show up to work the next day. Yeah. You're not going to be looked upon very favorably. So then, because then going forward, it's always Mercury I see yeah. on the label. So how how does that work? I don't know exactly the origin story of Mercury, but I think Mercury, I think Polygram started Mercury to handle, I think, mostly rock artists, if I'm not mistaken. Okay, because that's how I got everything listed from there on is as Mercury. I believe Polygram started Mercury, but I could be wrong. Feel free to correct me in the comments. Okay. All right. So then, of course, you know, Casablanca signs Peter Chris, Mercury Polygram, not interested. Sadly, same thing for Angel. Neither one of them transfer from Casablanca to Mercury like Kiss. Those two entities are done at that point until many years later, and they'll make comebacks. But at this point, 1980, no more Peter Chris, no more Angel. Hmm. Now, Mercury is ready to do some move in here. 
So we got Kiss, right? We got to have more rock bands. Hey, there's this thing going on in England. They got one album out, but people are really talking about them. I think we could sign them and make it into the next big thing. You know, this English rock thing is going on. It's the English metal. But these guys are a little bit different than the rest. Around 1980, Mercury signs Def Leppard. Smart move on their part. I would say, yeah. So going into the next part of the decade, yeah, that's going to pay dividends for Mercury. They're going to make up for what they're losing with Kiss. (laughs) (laughs) Here it is. Around 1981, A&M Records, you know, they got them heavy, heavy hitters like Sticks and 38 Special. Yep, you called it. They signed Y&T, which really kind of goes to show how Y&T was on the forefront of hard rock and metal. They were huge in San Francisco, adored in California. The rest of the world didn't know about Y&T, but A&M saw something there and said, well, you know, let's sign these guys. So A&M and Y&T, well, they both got and in their name, but other than that, (laughs) not a whole lot in common. Like, our logos will look great together. But other than that, we don't know what the hell to do with you. Uh, and if if you haven't seen the YNT self-produced documentary, I think it's called On With The Show, you can get it on Amazon. you got to pay for it. But trust me, it's worth it. I've watched it like four times since I got it. Um, they go in-depth on the whole <laughs> the whole relationship with them. It, it's, it's pretty interesting to hear about. Oh, I bet. Yeah, because YNT, I mean, they were... On the precipice, they could have been a household name, but it never happened for them. I'm betting that's got a lot to do with a label that has no clue. Yeah, they really didn't. All right, talking about early bands getting signed, it should be no surprise that Kicks is also one of the early ones out of Baltimore, picked up by Atlantic. See, Atlantic's, they're, they're making some moves here. They're seeing what's coming, and they scoop up Kicks. Then another big one right here, Ozzy Osbourne, around 82. He was on that little record label Jet out of England. But man, after those first two albums, you know somebody's going to be offering Ozzy Osbourne big, big money to sign. And the record label that does it is Epic. So Ozzy Osbourne, done with Jet. Now he's a part of Epic Records. See what these labels are doing? Some of them are seeing what's happening. Some of them not so much. Another one early on, I mean, we haven't really mentioned them, but if we do a part two to this, we probably mention them a few times. But in 82, Arista signs Crocus. So you're thinking about like the roots of rock and where these bands, especially in that era, are coming from, who were the first early, early ones. And you got Y&T, you got Kicks, you got Crocus. And you also got Quiet Riot around 82, signs with CBS. CBS Records, this is the only time they're going to be mentioned on this because Quiet Riot's really the only hard rock thing that they got. Yeah. And really, it's through another record label called Pasha, and that's a part of CBS. And so really, it's kind of, yeah, they're a CBS recording artist, but it's because they're hooked in with this little small label that's somehow hooked in with CBS. Yeah, and because if I'm correct, and feel free to correct me, Spencer Proffer, who was the producer of that record, I believe he owned Pasha Records. I think it was his own label. That is correct. Yeah. And so, yeah, so that's where that comes from. So Spencer Proffer, I guess, sponsors these guys. And then, like, if you look technically the first two albums – after the Randy Rhodes era, after they come back, are freaking huge. 
And so by the third album, it's like, no, no, you're CBS now. (laughs) So they went from being Pasha to by then they're CBS. So we're going to call that CBS. Then here's another name we have not mentioned up to this point, because up to this point, they really haven't done a whole lot as far as hard rock music. But now things are really going to take off. This label probably best known for The Doors way back, Electra. Yeah. Well, it's 1982, and Electra's looking around Los Angeles and going, you know what? These Motley Crue bastards are crazy. <laughs> they smell real bad, but they also smell like money. Electra scoops up Motley Crue, and probably one of the smartest moves that you're going to see on this list here today. Yeah, and I believe Tom Zutat was a big part of that. He uh, helped discover them and get them signed, and... Tom was actually at Rockin' Pod this year, and I've oh. struck up a little bit of a friendship with him. I've talked to him back and forth, and he hasn't done any podcast interviews, but he told me when he's ready to do it, um, and he's thinking of starting his own show, he said he would come on here and, and talk to us. That would be awesome. Yeah, that guy should start his own show or write a book yeah. if he could feel like he could get away with telling some of the stories of the, I can only imagine, crazy-ass oh. things he's seen. And if you've seen The Dirt, I think who was it that Pete Davidson plays him? Yeah, because when he when he walked walked into Rock and Pod and he saw me and my wife, I looked up at him and my wife doesn't know who he is, but I knew immediately who he was. I was like, "You don't look anything like Pete Davidson." He just started laughing. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, man, I'd love to talk to him. Yeah. But he saw Motley Crue and said, "That's money right there." And boy, was he right. Electro's really lucky to have the guy. Because he's got an eye for talent, as we're going to see as this goes on. Next, we got another movement. It's Nazareth. They're leaving A&M, and they're going to Vertigo. Vertigo is kind of a smaller European label, but at this point, Nazareth is kind of on the downslope. It's not 1975 anymore. I think A&M may just cut them loose, and then Vertigo picked them up. They still got a lot to give in their career. Matter of fact, they're still putting out new albums today. We'll see what happens with Nazareth. Yeah, if they can help out Vertigo, we'll see. So then the next thing I see, and this was another one I didn't really mention, but probably need to, in 1982, Chrysalis Records signs Billy Idol. That's going to sell a lot of records. Managed by Bill Coin. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So in the, we'll say, part two, if we do a part two to this, where this shit really explodes into the 80s, we're going to have to talk about Chrysalis a little bit. If nothing else, just to mention Chris's favorite guitar player. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Everybody hates inside Vinnie Vincent jokes around here. <laughs> oh, the, some of the uh, the people from Chrysalis that I've talked to, boy, the stories I've heard. Oh, I can only imagine. <laughs> and these are off-the-record conversations. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Poor Chrysalis. Yeah. Like where's Billy Idol when we need him? I yeah. get this crazy guy. I'll, I'll just I'll just say things were twice as insane as you imagine. I can't even imagine that. I wouldn't want to. Those poor poor people. All right. Well, that's going to kind of wrap up 1982. So now we're rolling into 83, and Warner Brothers is at it again. You know they've got some of the biggest bands in the world of rock music. Well. Being that they got Black Sabbath on their label, they're looking at Ronnie James Dio, and when Ronnie decides he's going to split Black Sabbath, well, he makes kind of a backdoor deal with Warner Brothers that gets him signed to that record label to release that debut album and a few more after that. 
So now Dio is a part of the roster of Warner Brothers, which is pretty awesome. Then you got Dokken. Again, here's Tom Zutat, I bet. Saw Dokken and was like, man, we got to get those guys signed to Elektra. If we're going to become one of the biggest record labels of the 80s, then we got to have guys like Motley Crue. We got to have guys like Dokken. Dokken's on the roster for Elektra now. We go back to Warner Brothers. Boy, they was they took a gamble on this one. It was the return of Grand Funk Railroad. They'd been gone for a minute. Now they're back to be hip and cool in the 80s. They dropped the railroad. They're just Grand Funk now. And they got one album. I don't know if they plan on having more or if that's just the way it worked out. But as far as Warner Brothers goes, it's one and done with them. Now here we go. This is more our speed again. 1983, CBS. We talked about them a minute ago because they signed Quiet Riot. Well, they also went out there and got themselves fast way. So CBS has got something good going on here too. They're signing some young up-and-coming bands. And it's weird to think like Quiet Riot and Fastway, young up-and-coming bands. Do you ever think what Fastway could have become if things could have worked out with that band? If Warner Brothers would have signed Fastway instead of Grand Funk? Well, but just with like with Pete Way having all the issues and like they, they didn't get to kind of come to fruition the way they wanted to. Yeah, that's true. Because by the time that first album comes out, I don't think Pete Way was even involved in it. No, he wasn't. He he dropped out. I think it was before it was even it even got released. But it's just like man, like and like the trick or treat soundtrack's cool and everything. But like yeah. it, I, there's there was a lot of untapped potential that could have been with that band. I think. Yeah, because I had never even heard of Fastway until the trick or treat soundtrack, and then was like this. This music's amazing. You know, I want to know more about Fastway. But by that time, you know, it was kind of too late for them. Like to have, to get people to notice you, that attention would have been great at the beginning of their career. At, in 83, would have been great to have that kind of attention put on you. But by the time that rolls around, man, it's too late. Yeah, I tried to get my wife to watch Trick or Treat with me a few weeks ago. Yeah? Didn't go well. No? <laughs> she was not a fan. I haven't watched it in so long. It's because it's, I think it's because it's better in my memories than if I were to sit down and actually watch it again. You can trust me. It is. Yeah. <laughs> Cause in my memories is one of the greatest movies I've ever seen. That's why I'm a little scared to watch it again nowadays. I mean, if you can just appreciate it for the time it was released, you'll still enjoy it, but it, it's not a great movie. Yeah. My kid around Halloween was asking me about scary movies. I was like, oh, have you ever seen Trick or Treat? You ought to look that up. But didn't clue him into none of it. <laughs> like, yeah, I don't know if he ended up watching it or not, but I was like trying to trick him into watching Trick or Treat. <laughs> All right, so still going through the 80s. We're going to see some new names coming up here. Mercury's back. They got Kiss. They got Def Leppard. They're not done around 83 they signed former Runaways guitarist Lita Ford to a deal. So now they're building up their roster there. What do we have here? New labels. Oh, man, a couple of them. Megaforce and Metal Blade. Mm. These guys, not huge movers and shakers, but, man, when you look back in rock and metal history, you really got to give it up for Megaforce and Metal Blade. They really saw this before anybody else. Oh, yeah. Pivotal in, in the history. 100%. Like, while these other labels are trying to nitpick, like, what they think is going to be the most successful to make the most money, 
Megaforce and Metal Blade are looking at these bands going, this is some groundbreaking stuff. This is the future. And they're out there signing bands. So Megaforce, around 83, gets Metallica. They're not going to be there for long, but man, they had the foresight to sign them. Same with Metal Blade. Right around that same time, they snatch up Slayer. Two bands that would get signed by other labels later for way bigger money. Man, you got to give it up for Megaforce. You got to give it up for Metal Blade for really being on the forefront of all of this. Because they didn't have the money to play with that Atlantic Capital Warner Brothers had to play with. But they valued the music and made the musicians feel like, give us a chance. We'll get your name out there. We'll make some magic happen. We see the future, and you are it. All credit to John and Marsha Zazula, you know, Johnny Z for Megaforce, and then um, Brian Slagle for Metal Blade. I mean, these people did this with shoestring budgets, but had an amazing eye for talent and could see the next trend coming up the pike. Like Metallica's the biggest metal band in the world. They're playing stadiums to this day. Yeah. And you have uh, you know John and Marsha to to thank for that, and and Brian Slagle, all three of them, true visionaries, all of them. All right, let's keep on going. Let's look at the big money guys again. Atlantic around eighty three, they found Twisted Sister. They see some value in that. Now we're rolling to eighty four. Capital, they see Wasp. There's something to that. Capital ends up with Wasp. So this is pretty cool to see, like, these are young up-and-coming bands at this point. To us, legendary. But here, they're kids writing songs, getting signed. I have to think somebody, you said it was Capital that signed Wasp? Yeah. I have to think somebody at Capital who was, like, the talent scout that brought them to the label had to really, you know, clinch hard when they, you know, made that pitch. Because, yeah, I mean... That was the future, but nobody at that time knew that that was going to be the future. And and also, actually, Wasp was kind of like the bridge band between, you know, theatrical Alice Cooper Kiss rock to hair bands. So the, yeah, I have to give them credit, too, because that was a very original idea at the time, or at least it was different than everything else going on. But, like, can you imagine being the guy at Capitol that goes to the label and goes... I just saw this band throw raw meat at an audience. Let's sign them. Right. Yeah. I mean, because you're talking about Capitol Records, that's a big label, you know. So to bring in and, hey, let me introduce Wasp, you know, and they look at them and go, what the hell? You know, because you're talking about Capitol Records. You're talking about, like, who do we got on our roster right now? Steve Miller Band, Sammy Hagar, Juice Newton. Wasp? What what are you doing? You're lucky you didn't get fired. I can't believe they signed them. I can't either. That's why I was like, it took some big balls to, to even make that pitch. But somebody must have said, you know, I'm telling you, this is the future. It's coming. Another band that's probably going to see a little more success a little bit later on, but it's still getting good attention. One of the original OG California rock bands, Great White. Around 83, they get signed to EMI, but they're going to get scooped up later on and become a way bigger deal. And here we are, 1984. The impossible has happened. Alice Cooper has been dropped by Warner Brothers. Straight up dropped. Well, considering the material he had put out during that time before, 
you know, if you're a record from a record label's perspective, they're like, this is like as non radio as you get. So, I mean, I, I can't imagine that the label shed much of a tear when they dropped them. I mean, you got to think they probably did a little bit because they said this guy was so successful, sold so many records for us, bought all of us houses, bought all of us cars. What happened? You know, do you get to the point where you go, we might as well fire his ass. He just doesn't produce anymore. What's the point of keeping him around? So for Warner Brothers to look at it and go, man, this is, when it comes to rock, this has been our guy since the early 70s, but he just doesn't have it anymore. I mean, look at him. Wow. You know, he's drunk and he's high and he's drooling on himself and we can't understand what this music is supposed to be and it's time for him to go. And they probably figure he's just going to go off and die. Oh, sure. I mean, it. yeah, I mean, his time had clearly passed him by, which makes his current status even more miraculous. But, yeah. um, but I mean, at the time it's the song hadn't come out for a few years at that point, but like Janet Jackson said, what have you done for me lately? So that was, that was the, uh, the label's perspective at that time was like, he's not selling records. So let's drop him. Right. Which, you know, we got Dada out of it cause they were pissed off. That the label made it clear they weren't going to push it. So right. at least you got some great art out of it. Uh, Alice Cooper, formerly Warner. Alice Cooper's going to remain a free agent until 1986, but I think in retrospect, that's probably a good thing because if somebody would have come in and offered him a contract immediately after that, I bet he'd be dead. Most likely. I bet you by 85, Alice Cooper's dead if he doesn't take that break after the blackout years. Yeah, that's tough times, man. I hate to see that. So now here's another one that is coming up on this discussion for the very first time, which will be a huge part of the rock scene going forward as far as record labels go. Because around 1984, Aerosmith finds themselves back together. They got the original members back, Whitford's back, Joe Perry's back. They've been with Columbia for a long, long time, but now it's time for a change they're going with somebody new, a little record company known as Geffen. You know, it's interesting you bring them up because there's a great documentary. I think it's on Netflix. I think it's called Being David Geffen, and it's like his life story. And, man, what in, you know, and definitely he's not a hard rock guy in the least. Like, he, the Eagles and Joni Mitchell, that was his thing. But talk about a brilliant mind that knew when to get in when to take advantage and when to get off the track when things were going to go south. I mean, like not to make this into a whole David Gavin episode, but like brilliant guy that actually knew how to see trends coming. If we, we have to do a part two of this because God, the years that come after what we're going to cut off at are huge. Right. Yeah. I mean, G and R and like Geffen ended up taking over like the world for a while. Yeah. But brilliant guy, was a real visionary, but really an artist type of person that also could be business savvy, which is very hard to come by. It's usually one or the other. And that guy is a brilliant guy. Yeah, he was definitely using both sides of his brain all the time. Yeah, and that's that's very rare in that industry. And it's funny you say that about, you know, we could turn this into a David Geffen episode. That's no joke because, like, I thought, you know, well, everybody knows Geffen, especially Guns N' Roses. 
you know, so I really don't need to talk about it too much, but I'd like to like give a little facts about it or whatever. But then it's like, you start reading on it and it's like, okay, so if I'm going to talk about David Geffen, I actually have to go back several years and talk about several different record labels that he was a part of and yeah. why he left this one and why he went left that one, why he signed with them and why he ended up starting his own label. And then I'm looking at that going, man, that's an episode all to itself. So everybody knows Geffen. Here they are. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, before even Geffen Records was Asylum Records that he started, which was a purely independent label, and then yeah. broke the the Eagles. I mean, like the biggest selling album of all time, he broke off of independent label. It's nuts. Yeah, it's pretty wild. So there you have it: the introduction of Geffen into the '80s rock label wars. They're on. So we were talking about earlier about Epic Records and how they lost Ted Nugent. Well, they still got Boston. No, they lost Boston, too. (laughs) Never mind. They lost Boston. Uh, They still got Molly Hatchet. They still got Cheap Trick. And by 83, they're going to lose heart. And so they're having some trouble here. Epic's going to have to pick things up, which, you know, they got Ozzy. That's really all you need in the 80s. So they're going to be okay. But Hart leaves Epic and signs with Capital. So now Hart is a part of the Capital roster. Here we go. Some more young up-and-coming hard rockers from California. A little band called Rat. Yeah, they're looking in L.A. They're, the Sunset Strip is popping now to the point where they're sending execs down there to check things out. Like I said, if we when we do part two to this... That's going to completely explode. We're probably going to have to do a part two, part one, and part two because it's going to be so crazy. But again, you know, you talk about Quiet Riot, Great White, you know, these bands that are up and coming, Rats right there with them, not too far behind. They get signed to Atlantic. So Atlantic's doing some good things in the early part of the 80s, really building up that rock roster. They're seeing what's happening. They're back. Once again, we just talked about how Geffen signed Aerosmith away. I don't know if that's going to pay off for him right away, but, you know, I got a feeling eventually it will. So they're going to back it up. Around 84, they also sign Whitesnake. I also got good feelings about Whitesnake as far as, like, hit songs. I think they're going to do pretty good for Geffen. Yeah, I got a, I got, kind of got a feeling about that. Yeah. <laughs> Chrysalis is back once again. Up-and-coming bands from California around this time. This one kind of surprised me. I didn't realize they got signed so early. But, you know, this is Chrysalis we're talking about. And a weird place for this band to end up. And that band is Armored Saint. Mm. So they're signed to Chrysalis. Here's another one. King Cobra, round 84, gets signed to Capitol. So that's a pretty big deal. You know, but I got to imagine they see Carmine's part of it and go, oh, this guy's pretty legendary. Let's give these guys a shot. They're seeing what these other record labels are doing. They're seeing the emergence of Geffen and the emergence of Elektra. They're trying to keep up. So Capitals right there, they signed King Cobra. Striper gets signed to Enigma Records around 84. Right. So Enigma's another one that's outside the box. This is the only time they'll be mentioned on this conversation because, you know, Striper's about the only thing that they do that will fit this conversation. But you talk about the forerunners of the first bands getting signed to major record labels, Striper's one of them. Another one you might be surprised to hear is Rough Cut. Around that same time, 
Rough Cut, not a band that, I mean, the members have gone on to do some pretty noteworthy things. They're a great band, but as far as, like, household name, far from it. Yeah. But they're signed to Warner Brothers. That's a pretty big deal, I think. Well, it's funny, though, with Rough Cut, because people like our you know friend like Gregory Muse, I think, and some other people that I've talked to that, were that you know were aware of the LA scene and the West Coast scene during that those years, they were like the one of the bands that everyone thought for sure was going to break huge, and and it just didn't work out. Man, that's weird to wonder why. Because I mean, here they are, one of the forerunning bands to get major label deals, and they're signing with Warner Brothers, which we already established at the top of this is one of the very best. Like that's where you want to end up if you're a rock band. So, I mean, they had major label support. I wonder what happened, how it went wrong. I just don't, well, personal opinion, I just don't think they had the songs. Yeah. I don't know if I've listened to enough Rough Cut to really make a judgment call like that, but I should. I should listen to more of it. Check it out, see what I can figure out, why it didn't happen. But, man, they were signed. They weren't signed for very long, but they were signed. Uh, Queensryche gets signed around 84 to EMI. Anthrax gets hooked up with Megaforce. Again, Visionaries. Black and Blue was one of these original bands, one of the first to get signed around 84. And they get signed to Geffen. So Geffen keeps coming up in this conversation. They're building that roster little by little. Got Lizzie Borden signed to Metal Blade. Trouble signed to Metal Blade around that same time. Mercury's back at it. I got a good feeling with this pick. It's like when you're watching the NFL draft and your favorite team picks a guy and you go, I got a good feeling about this. I think they're going to find some success here. They got Kiss. They got Lita Ford. They got Def Leppard. This one's going to make the money. It's Bon Jovi. Yeah. They struck gold. I mean, between Def Leppard and Bon Jovi alone, Jesus. Yeah. They didn't even have to care about screwing over Kiss and losing money. Yeah, right. should we start, stop messing with KISS and really try to help them make us some money? No, no, screw them, guys. We've got Bon Jovi and Def Leppard for making money. Having KISS around, that's just to have fun and really stick it to them. Well, Bon Jovi did get to open for KISS in Europe in 84. Yeah, I guess that was before they knew just how big Bon Jovi was going to blow up. Yeah. And then how KISS was going to have to be forced to go, hey, let's uh, do a Bon Jovi album. We'll call it Crazy Nights. Well, before that, Paul Stanley tells John Bon Jovi, hey, I know this songwriter guy that could probably help you out. His name's Desmond Child. Right? Yeah, he could help you out for sure. Yeah. You're looking for a huge hit? That's your guy. All right, just a couple more here as far as signings go to round out 84. Overkill to Megaforce. The Firm, that's the Paul Rogers, Jimmy Page thing. Atlantic picks that up, which is a pretty big deal. It's the first time a member of Zeppelin has a major label album coming out. In around 84, Warner Brothers. This is always a funny story, too. You know, Warner Brothers got Van Halen, one of their most successful acts. David Lee Ross starts drifting away, but Warner Brothers isn't going to let him go. They're going to facilitate him to do his own thing. At the expense of the band, it seemed like. But David Lee Roth, label mates with Van Halen now. (laughs) That's awkward. Yeah. And I think maybe to me the most surprising name I saw on this list is the final one. And you're talking early 80s of the bands getting signed to major labels. 
It's kind of surprised by this one. I really didn't know this. And I guess maybe I just need to know more about the band, which is a band I like. Sabotage is signed around 84 to Atlantic Records. Hmm. Pretty interesting. I'd be, I wonder how, sometimes I wonder how this works. Like, how does Atlantic find a band like Sabotage and then go, this is going to be something. These guys are good. But then it doesn't go as far as you would imagine it going with a record label like Atlantic. I don't know, but like Sabotage for me personally, I I want so badly to like this band, but I never can. It never clicks with me, and I've tried several times to get into them. All right, so that's what it is. So after all that and figuring out who ends up where, I had to take it one step further. Mm-hmm. Just for my own sanity, I wanted to know out of all the movement, out of all the signings, bands leaving labels, joining up with other labels, labels dropping bands from their labels, and all the movement and pieces shuffled around. If we look at the years 1980 through 1984, the first five years of the 80s, which of these labels were the most successful? So in order to do that, I had to figure out a way to add a little math to this because you got to add it up. So then what do we add up? Ultimately, I thought the best way to add it up would be record sales. We'll just look at which labels had the most platinum records. Seemed like a good idea. The tricky part to that is it's really difficult to find how many albums by a certain band sold between the years of 1980 and 1984. When you look at like ACDC Back in Black, it's going to tell you it's double diamond. And that equals 25 platinum awards to that. But that's over all these years. You know, that's up to the current day. So that's not really fair to count it like that because we got to look at it in the times that it was in. So the best way I figured out to make some kind of point system for this to see who is the king of the early 80s rock labels was to look at top 20 albums. Mm-hmm. So that's what I did. So I went through each roster and I counted up the top 20 albums, how many each band had during that time period. So let's start with some of the newcomers. Obviously, top 20 albums... You can forget about Megaforce, and you can forget about Metal Blade. Their fortunes lie in the future, but not between 84 and 85. Sometimes, like Chris said, operating on a shoestring, doing it for the dream, for the love of metal, it's not going to make you rich. But many years later, we're all going to look back and go, you guys were freaking geniuses and saw things in a way nobody else saw. It's hard for the new labels starting up. Even Geffen, from 1980 to 1984, White Snake, zero. Black and Blue, I don't think they ever had a top 20 album. Aerosmith, their brand new signing, they're not going to get to count them until 1985. So the one single top 20 album for Geffen, for one point, Sammy Hagar. And that was before he left. He what? ended up leaving Geffen. Or no. Yeah, so they no, he did leave. Yeah, so he signed to Geffen, and then by 84, I think he's gone. What was the gone one, somewhere what else. What was the one that charted? 
What was it? Standing Hampton? Yeah, probably. I think. I think that was the one. So Geffen, they're off to a slow start, but I'm not too worried about them. I think they're going to be okay in the future with Aerosmith, <laughs> White Snake, and maybe they'll find a few more bands to sign that can get them in the top 20. I have no worries for them. Same with Electra. With Motley Crue, you get one. Dokken doesn't have any between this time period of the first part of the 80s. So Electra, Geffen, they're off to a start. But they'll get there. I know they will. CBS, we talked about them. They had Quiet Riot. Well, Quiet Riot gives them two. So, I mean, CBS with one band beats Electra and Geffen combined. You go to Capitol, you think, man, these guys got some great stuff. You know, they've got Sammy Hagar in 1980 before he goes to Geffen. Nothing. They got Hart on the roster, but they don't deliver either. Wasp. Uh, no top 20 albums from them. King Cobra, I don't think so. So to give them one single point, it's that old guy, man, the one you can always count on, Stevie Miller. Yeah. So it's a good thing they kept him. They're experimenting. They're trying things out. But Steve Miller's the only one coming through for them. Yeah. For Capital, that's their guy. I think that's when Abracadabra was on the charts. That's exactly the one. Yeah. That's what got Steve Miller that top 20 album. So then we'll talk about A&M. We mentioned earlier they got Sticks, they got 38 Special, and now they got Y&T. Well, it's a good thing they got Sticks and 38 Special because in this time period between 80 and 84, they combined for four top 20 albums between the two of them. Not bad. You don't have to have a whole lot of rock when you got bands that successful. So then from 80 to 84 with Mercury... We got Kiss, who signed in 83. Then they've got One, which was Animalize, was a top 20 album. Def Leppard with their second album. That's a top 20, so you got two points there. Lita Ford, not yet. Well, not ever, probably. And Bon Jovi, not yet. But plenty of it coming, I'm sure. So Mercury, not so hot in the early 80s. But yeah, shit's about to pick up for them, too. Epic. They signed Ted Nugent, and they, no, they lost Ted Nugent, and they lost Hart. But before Ted Nugent and Hart leave to not sell records for their new labels, they each got a top 20 album for Epic. Not bad. Thanks for the money. Now get out! (laughs) Molly Hatchet, nope. Cheap Trick, nope. Ozzy Osbourne, Bark at the Moon. Yes. So that's three points for Epic. They're in the lead so far. No, actually A&M. I forgot about A&M. That's crazy. They're in the lead so far, thanks to Sticks and 38 Special. (laughs) (laughs) That will change. (laughs) Yeah, real soon. Um, So then we look at Columbia. They got that awesome roster. You know, they got Aerosmith and Joe Perry Project together before Joe Perry Project goes away and Aerosmith leaves, join Geffen. At this point in time, Joe Perry Project not getting a top 20 Aerosmith, they're in rough shape. They're not even hitting the top 20 anymore. Blue Oyster Cult, they ain't got nothing to offer. Who can we count on? Judas freaking Priest with two of them in the top 20 in the United States. Hell yeah. So now we're down to the two biggest ones. One of these two record labels will slightly beat the other for more success in the early 80s. We're down to Warner Brothers. And we're down to Atlantic. 
Now, we've established Warner Brothers has got Van Halen. They've got ZZ Top. They got Black Sabbath without Ozzy. They've got Dio. They've got Rough Cut. And they've got David Lee Roth. On the other hand, Atlantic's got a pretty damn good roster, too. They've got ACDC, Foreigner. They've got Ted Nugent now, Rat, Kicks, Twisted Sister, and Sabotage. Wouldn't it be wild if Sabotage was the one that messes this all up? I don't think so. I don't think so. Okay, so Warner Brothers, man, as long as you've got Van Halen, you've beaten pretty much everybody else. Like, if Warner Brothers only had Van Halen, at this point they would tie because Van Halen in this time period of the early 80s, has four top 20 albums. That's one band alone beating most of these other labels in the early 80s. You add with them the two from ZZ Top, there you go. You got six. Black Sabbath, man, we're talking about Heaven and Hell and Born Again and all these albums without Ozzy. Sabbath really dropped off success-wise after Ozzy left. We look back now and we say, you know, Mob Rules and Heaven and Hell are such awesome, iconic albums. But at the time, Warner Brothers had to be looking at these guys like they're failures. Like, I can't believe we let Ozzy go. We should have let you guys go and kept Ozzy. True, in hindsight. In hindsight, I bet you that's what they were thinking. So Sabbath Sabbath doesn't deliver anything for them. Dio, that first album, as great as it is, not a top 20 album in the United States. Rough Cut, huh, I don't think so. And David Lee Roth, you're not going to get a shot at that until 1985. But you're going to do all right. Yeah, you're going to do all right, Warner Brothers. So six is the best so far. That leaves us with Atlantic. And again, you talk about a handful of the artists are doing good. Atlantic's got it pretty well spread out. So you've got ACDC, which is, you know, next to Van Halen. You're talking about the early 80s. It doesn't get much bigger than Van Halen or ACDC. So during this time period, ACDC has three top 20 albums. Then you've got Foreigner. They deliver two. Ted Nugent, hey, I'm new. I'm Atlantic. You know, I'm awesome. This is going to be great. Man, nothing. (laughs) His best success was with the label he just left. Atlantic probably feels like they got the short end of the deal here. Although not placing in the top 20 was still big bucks back then, but it was also looked at as a bigger failure than what it really actually was. They've got Rat on the roster now. That debut album, man, it's top 20, so Rat's contributing right off the bat. Twisted Sister, they're contributing right off the bat. So you got a point from them, too, for a top 20 album. Kicks, Sabotage, not so much. But with the combined power of ACDC, Foreigner, Rat, and Twisted Sister, that lifts Atlantic to being the number one rock music label of the early 80s. See, I would have thought it would have been Warner Brothers because of the Van Halen thing. Yeah, as far as looking at a single band with the most top 20 albums, it's Van Halen. They've got more top 20 albums between 80 and 84 than any other band on this list. So as far as rock bands, early 80s, Van Halen's number one. But who do they got to back them up? 
Dio's not doing nothing yet. Rough Cut's not going to. David Lee Roth needs more time. So now you're relying on ZZ Top and Black Sabbath. If Black Sabbath would have had just one top 20 album in the United States, it would have been a tie. But since Black Sabbath isn't delivering top 20 albums anymore, you're relying on ZZ Top, which this is Eliminator era. So two top 20 albums in five years is pretty impressive. But you just can't mess with Van Halen in the early 80s. Nobody's more successful than them. So if you break down like who's got the most successful band, it's Warner Brothers. But who has the most successful bands as a team, as a roster, by a hair? It's Atlantic. So Atlantic wins round one of the label wars. Yeah. I'm actually kind of excited to do part two of this because Me too. by doing the research to this, it's it was kind of cool because I didn't know any of this stuff when I started out. It just started out as a little spark in my mind of wondering what the answer to this would be to then actually going and finding the answer and then in a way that I could present to everybody as well as discovering it for myself. So I know that part two is going to be really damn hard. Yeah. It's going to be interesting to see how the sales change depending on the label. And, and you know, it, it, a lot of this is interesting strategy on the labels part because who was ahead of the game, who wasn't, who was late to the party and tried to jump on a trend way after the fact when they shouldn't have. So it's, it's interesting strategy thing to look at. So, uh, yeah, look at it like a war almost. It, it's pretty interesting. Yeah, almost like a draft even, you know, yeah. where you're trying to build the best team as possible so that you can go out and win more awards and make more money than anybody else. And, I mean, think about the bands and the albums that come out between 85 and 89, like, there's so many bands that get signed. So, like, if I'm looking at Atlantic, and as far as rock music goes, truly, they've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven bands on the label. Some of these labels have even less than that. But I'm betting that if we do part two and I look at Atlantic, that list is going to be at least twice that long. Oh, yeah, easily. I don't know about top 20 albums, how that's all going to play out, but... It'll be pretty damn interesting to see how it goes. But I thought this was a good kind of a launching pad. So that's where I really want to go with this. I really want to see the second part, but it only made sense to do this part first. And we can go back and we can do this for the 70s. And we can do it for, no, I guess we want to. We can do it for the 90s. I don't know if I'd go any further past that, though. I wouldn't go past 95. (laughs) No, because at that point, it'd be like, Half of these bands are signed by Sony. The other half are signed by Universal Music. No top 20 albums for rock bands between any of them. Yeah. It, times are going to change. But um, but I love the concept, and I, especially if you're a listener. and you, Our, our listeners are pretty knowledgeable, so I'm interested to hear people, because I know we have listeners that have worked in the industry. So if you worked for one of these labels and you have stories to share, you know, do it in the comments and, uh, and let us know what you think. Are you surprised by what the top label was and uh who do you think should have gotten more mention and like i said you want us to read those comments on next week's show no matter how many holes you can poke in this that i messed up or left out or forgot or just didn't know about you do it with a five-star review on pod chaser and then we're forced to read it so a little <laughs> incentive for you five pink stars you guys suck 
<laughs> Camaro, you're so stupid. <laughs> oh, but that was fun. Oh, I, I like the concept. I think that we could definitely revisit it, especially for the second half of this decade. All right. I'm looking forward to that. Maybe not so much the homework, but definitely the results. Well, I'll help next time. All right. Awesome. So there you have it. That's the latest episode of the Decibel Geek Podcast. We thank everybody that listens to this show, has been listening to us for the past 12 plus years. You know, we love rock music. We love to talk about it. It consumes our brains sometimes, and we just have to get it out. So thank you for listening to the show. So we got somebody we feel like are listening to us. And we go on these crazy rants. You know, speaking of crazy rants, Chris is a grandfather now, so you can expect more of them in the future. And, uh, yeah, check out Pantheon Podcast. Give us a like and a follow on the Facebook. We like that a lot, too. And, uh, yeah, thanks. You guys are awesome. And we'll catch you next time. And get off my lawn. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.